What is up, everybody? On today's Impactful Writing Podcast, Anxiety and Despair, Why They're Important Emotions and Themes for Writers and Storytellers. Um, I'm Jay Shear, author of the supernatural steampunk western Death of a Bounty Hunter. I always have the poster behind me right here on the wall. And joining me today, uh, you've seen him numerous times on this show, my co-host, comic book writer, screenwriter of the feature film, The Mongolian Connection. I keep wanting to say The Mandalorian Connection because The Mandalorian's on my brain, but it's The Mongolian Connection. And an extremely well-read individual, Caleb Monroe. Um, I will I will add him to the stream here. Hey, Caleb, how you doing? Hey, everyone. I'm good. Yeah, it's good to see you, brother. Um, thanks for listening in. Uh, all the shows in our network, just like this one, are produced by our nonprofit production company, Reclamation Society. But we are going to jump right into it. Anxiety and despair and why those emotions and, and themes are important to writers and to storytellers. Um, so, Caleb, in our last show, we got into hope. That was two weeks ago. We got into hope and started talking a little bit more about uh, hope. And then you actually reached out to me and said, you know, we, we didn't really touch on anxiety at all. So tell me more about that. How are hope and anxiety sort of related and, and different from one another? Yeah, so we, we talked about hope as an imagining otherwise, the ability to imagine that things can be better than they are now, while at the same time acknowledging that there's problems now. That is why we're hoping, you know? Right. Um, but what we didn't really finish going into is that the imagining otherwise can go wrong too. <laughs> we can imagine a worse future and not a, a better future. We can imagine how things might get worse rather than how they might get better. And that's anxiety. That's that's what anxiety is. Just imagining that things uh, will and are getting worse. Uh, that's really good. Yeah, that's a really good way of, of looking at it too. Um, and we can have we can have anxiety because of an some uh, things getting worse that we don't know how they're going to get worse. We could have anxiety due to change, just like general change in our life. So yeah, that's a I like adding anxiety to this thing. So. We wanted to kind of, and why are we talking about, um, why are we talking about anxiety and despair uh, on the anniversary of September 11th and during a pandemic? And I think kind of there's no better time to do that. And so we're going to dig deeper into this topic, especially from a storytelling standpoint, so that we can kind of try to understand it a little bit better. And I like that setup that we can deal with based on formally talking about hope and now diving into these a little bit darker subjects, but related to what storytellers are consistently dealing with. Also wanted to just give out a shout out to Alexander. Alexander left us a comment and said he got here early. So thank you, Alexander, for getting here early. I appreciate it. Um, so what are some exam exemplary examples from your perspective when we're talking about anxiety in storytelling, both from the characters in the story who might be experiencing it, but also how that translates to the audience who's either watching it on screen or reading it in a book. Tell me some, what are some exemplary examples that you found dealing with anxiety and, uh, well, specifically anxiety right now? Yeah, uh, the, the first two that cropped up when I, when I thought about this question. Um, so I think one of the best examples of anxiety in a character, mm is in vertigo oh. um uh, you know where the character is dealing with a very specific condition that is mm -hmm. itself a type that's a type of anxiety it's a type of fear um a vertigo that has to be faced to resolve the story um and then i, I think an excellent example of anxiety in the audience is cape fear uh, both both versions of Cape Fear, I think, do a great job of really making you, the audience member, tense and mm. uncomfortable and worried about the characters. Mm. Yeah, those are really good. Those are really, really good examples. I have on the audience side as a as a as a broad category, um horror always makes me anxious. And we are, you and I are always talking about horror. Now, mm -hmm. You and, and I know that if I'm having a conversation with you and if I'm having a conversation with Sandra Demas, my co-host on the uh, story geeks podcast i know that horror will come up in some way <laughs> and for whatever reason i have a lot of anxiety when i watch horror and I, I remember specifically my a bunch of people told me that the haunting of hill house on netflix was one of the best shows that they have ever seen it's one of the best shows you got to watch it it's unbelievable i watched one episode and i had anxiety for like four days like for whatever reason it just was it just stuck with me and i think that um 
I think that, that that's an, a really good example of where they've done it really well so that the audience feels the anxiety, right? Like they've, they've elicited these emotions in you uh, both visually and uh, in, in audio ways. All of the experience is very, um, it draws you in and engages you in the emotions that a lot of the characters are experiencing. And I felt quite a lot of anxiety. And I think the anxiety can relate to a lack of control, the feeling of losing our safety of having to confront something or someone, um, all of these things about what you talked about, your overarching definition of things could get worse. Like that, mm-hmm. that, that is exactly true when we look at horror. This is this happens to us a lot when we look at horror. Um, on the character side, I actually, the first thing that came to mind, I know that I showed a different Jordan Peele film because uh, the, the um, header image, the thumbnail image I used for this video was from Get Out which that character goes through a bunch of anxiety, um, the lead character in that. But I also thought about Jordan Peele and the way that he presented um, us. And we, you and I talked about this a mm-hmm. lot in the Story Geeks podcast. But uh, Lupita's character in us has a lot of anxiety in that film. Because even the fact that she's going, she's supposedly going on a relaxing trip to the beach is bringing back trauma, this childhood trauma that she's had in the past. And we feel that tension in her, but she feels that tension on screen. And I think that um, that past trauma is another good way to induce anxiety, right? So, like, mm-hmm. that, I think that was a good uh, exemplary way of using anxiety both on screen and in the audience to bring about these these different emotions. So, so. yeah, I agree. Uh, anxiety is ultimately a species of fear, mm-hmm. right? It's a fear that things will get worse. Yeah. Um, so that puts you square in the horror genre and, and in many parts of the thriller genre. Uh, We've talked about how the name of a genre usually tells you what the primary emotion (laughs) is going to be in a horror, in the horror genre, you will primarily feel horror or fear. And in a thriller, thriller is interesting because you can be positively thrilled. Like, Ooh, this is so exciting, But, but we don't. We don't, when we say the genre thriller, we're not talking about any positive thrills. It's all the negative thrills. Um, (laughs) So that's a, that's a, a, you know, strange case there, but um, yeah. So especially dealing with your character's anxieties and creating anxieties in your, well, actually I should say, especially creating anxieties in your audience more than dealing with your character's anxieties, Mm. uh, horror and thriller are going to be some home genres for that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, this is a this is um, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but this is a good segue really quickly into um, when you are writing for an audience and you're trying to elicit certain emotions in them. I know that, like, for example, I am far less likely to feel anxious if I am watching a movie where the characters there's been a lot of uh, news lately about Scream. I think what is it? Scream five. That's just been mm-hmm. cast. Um <clears throat> I personally am far less likely to feel anxious watching a movie like Scream than I am watching a TV show like Haunting of Hill House. Because for whatever reason, if you're trying to make me anxious, you're going to need to go to the paranormal, supernatural aspects of things to make me feel more anxious. And so even even as we talk about these things, one of the things to keep in mind from a storytelling perspective or from an audience perspective is who are you writing for? And so you may not be making Caleb anxious uh, when you write one kind of story, but you may be making Jay really anxious when you write that same story. And so knowing who you're writing for is also really important um, because I think that that can help you kind of deal with that emotion to a degree. So I think that's really, really cool. Um, really, Yeah. Quickly. And just to throw it out there, a, a non-supernatural paranormal equivalent, I think would be Chernobyl. Oh, that that's, that's so an good. deeply yes. anxiety-inducing <laughs> uh, miniseries, and knowing when I watched the first episode, the heaviness of the first episode, knowing that there was four more of those, oh. added to my anxiety. I'm going to have to feel <laughs> like this for four and a half more hours, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so, so you can actually use the length of your the emotions you're creating near the beginning of something that people know will have a certain length yeah. to uh, increase your audience's anxiety because they they know they're just at the beginning of this journey and already they're deeply anxious. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about how storytellers can do this um, in the next question too, which is kind of a good, a good segue. Um, But Alexander uh, brought up in the chat that twilight zone uh, when Rod Sterling was the narrator, 
Um, but really, all the Twilight Zones have done a really good job of being able to showcase um, anxiety in in the different episodes that they've had too. I remember, um, you remember the one with William Shatner in a plane with the monster on the wing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one terrified me as a kid for some reason. Yeah. I have a fear of flying, and I so that was like like what monsters and flying? Like why did you combine <laughs> these things uh, as a kid? And what's great about Twilight Zone is that they they created anxiety in you with some stories that were completely straightforward. Yeah. They did it with some stories that had supernatural elements or science fiction elements. And then they did it with some stories where you have to figure out whether it was straightforward or had those elements <laughs> or it was just in someone's mind. Yeah, that's very they, true. That's so very Twilight true. Zone explores all the types of anxiety if you want to get a master class <laughs> in anxiety. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Go into watch some Twilight or some uh, Twilight Zone. Um, so if we're we've already started talking about what types of tips that writers can use and storytellers can use related to anxiety, but what are some extra suggestions you have if somebody's looking to add um, either anxiety in their characters or anxiety that the audience is going to feel, what are some tips and techniques you might recommend to them? Um, I think one of the, uh, the umbrella th- uh, tool that I will suggest is confirm people's fears. Ah. Uh, so conspiracy, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just skipping ahead. Anxiety Uh, I found a quote, it's unsourced. It was on a social media quoting a social media and I don't know where it began. Um, (laughs) But this quote that said, anxiety is conspiracy stories about yourself. And so you are are telling this conspiracy story about how things are not going well about yourself, um, this future that you're fearing. Hmm. And if you start confirming your character's conspiracy stories or the very things about themselves that they fear and wish were not true, you will be creating anxiety in them. Yeah. And, uh, and with your audience, it's the same thing. If you start doing to your characters the very things that you know the audience is fearing you're going to do to your characters, um, that also creates anxiety because then they know you might keep doing this or you might do it again, <laughs> you know? Right. right. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. Um, I've got a couple of them. One, one trying to get uh, how how to how to search for things that could make people anxious, and then also just how to, from a technique perspective, work it in. And it's interesting because um, you just gave almost the exact opposite technique that I'm going to give. So this is really interesting because this is this is two sides of the same coin, but in in opposite directions. On the one side, you can actually showcase that bad things are going to happen. On the other side, you can deal with information that the audience knows that the characters don't know or that the characters know that the audience doesn't know. And so what that does is it creates a tension of either uh, on the one side, you'll say if, a, if the characters don't have information that the audience has, the audience is then getting anxious, progressively anxious, anxious wondering how the character will figure this out and if they'll figure this out at the wrong time or at the worst time for them. So there's that aspect of it. But there's also if um, if if you're withholding information from the audience that, the, that they know that the characters have. And so they're trying to wonder, like, how in the world is this going to is this going to be um, turned around? So, for example, if you're withholding information from the audience, Jordan Peele does that with Lupita's character uh, because we know that she's anxious, but we don't know why she's anxious. And he's withholding that from us. And then he gives us a little bit more. And he tells us, well, it was because of the carnival experience she had at the beach when she was a kid. But we still don't know what about that experience exactly, besides the separation from her parents, made her so anxious. And we don't realize that till the very end of the film. So um, there's just ways of dealing with information where uh, it can be really, really, really frightening. The other example I had to showcase when you you give the audience information, but you don't give the characters information is in Lord of the Rings because we see Gollum talking to himself about how he's going to betray Sam and Frodo. And so we as an audience know we're just waiting for Gollum to betray them. And now we're increasing the tension uh, with the audience while we're waiting, like, when's he going to do it? When's he going to do it? And he keeps kind of befriending them and benefiting them. And we, but we know his mind is to do something far more despicable. So that's, I think, a really interesting way of dealing with those things too. Yeah. Another great example of that, of giving your audience uh, information and not your characters is the opening scene in Inglorious Bastards. 
Oh yeah. Where the, you know that um, the person is being hidden under the floorboards. Yes. While the Nazi and the other person on top of, of her are sitting at a table and having a conversation and it's a long conversation. And this whole time you you know, you know, and that is an excellent, excellent example. It made me very anxious. Well, and not only that, but that is consistently something that I find Tarantino fascinating in regards to his writing and his directing, because there are mo- that he has several of those types of scenes throughout various different movies that he has done where the tension is building throughout the scene and it's almost like i've seen him i've seen him overdo it where he actually loses me because he goes so far he goes so long with the scene that i just kind of go like dude come on just get the scene over with but um but there's a later scene in that film where where uh they're in the bar and uh all the and, and the nazis come in and there's the guys acting like they're um, Nazis and he even does the he even does the three then they then the guys know who it is and stuff. All of those scenes are done uh, in Glorious Bastards exemplary with like the stretch out scene makes it more and more tense that whole time. So I actually yeah I love that example. Yeah, um, and, and and that 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 brings up that another tool for creating mm-hmm. anxiety in your audience is time. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Yeah, because if you and if you don't, as you're revealing or not revealing information to them, uh, the 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 how time is elapsing, so that Jordan Peele, like going back to us, is giving us the bits of information so that we continue to feel anxious, and they'll give us a little bit more of a piece, and that only makes us feel even more anxious because we know that it's getting worse. Like you talked about originally in the, in your definition. We know that it's going to get worse or that it could get very bad. And we're seeing that unravel one step at a time, which is heightening our anxiety, which I think is really, really good. Um, The one other tip that I came up with for for people is to, uh, and especially when you're trying to find an audience for your work, this is especially helpful in terms of how I've used it, but is to draw on your own anxieties. And so if you're trying to write something that's trying to make an audience feel anxious, but it doesn't make you feel anxious, then that's going to be really difficult for you to do. It's probably better to look back and see what causes you to have anxiety and then to explore that for your audience. Um, And maybe you don't make everybody anxious, but you're aiming that story at people who are like you. I mentioned earlier that I get anxious getting on planes because I have past trauma because I was in an emergency landing one time. Um, It's a long story. I've told it before. But that anxiety that was produced by that experience causes me to have anxiety getting on a plane in the modern day. So, of course, when I watch The Twilight Zone, thanks, Alexander, for that reference. When I watch The Twilight Zone and see a monster on a wing, not only are they dealing with the paranormal of the monster being on the wing, but the guy is on a plane, which makes me anxious already. So (laughs) that just is 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 an effect that's kind of cool. Yeah, Um, and a a general good rule when it comes to writing hmm is no one will love your characters as much as you do. <laughs> yeah, true. And so you need to do to your characters the things you don't want to happen to your characters. Mm. You you will feel protective of them because you love them, but you need to do the things you don't want to do that, that cause anxiety in yourself, even just thinking about doing it to these um, to these characters that you love. Yeah. Yeah, actually, and that's there's a um, really quick before we move on to the next segment. Um, I've got a, cu- a question from from Justin, which is a really good question, a very insightful question. But I also wanted to talk um, to to piggyback on what you just said. Um, did you watch the uh, TV show? What was it called? Hollywood on Netflix. No, it came up in our conversation uh, to. The last episode, I guess, two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I haven't seen it. Okay. So I just wanted to throw this out there because that is a really good example of them sort of not doing what you just suggested. In my mind. In my mind. Um, And I'm not here to criticize things, but I'm just trying to give good examples. And if you watch that show, you'll watch the first three episodes. And you are sucked in to Hollywood in the 1940s, 30s, 40s. I think it's 40s. Um, and you're really sucked in. I mean, the, the production design is phenomenal. Um, the way that they filtered it, the way that the characters look and behave is, is really, really good. And they deal with a lot of characters who are closeted homosexual, uh, who are uh, people of color 
in Hollywood at that time. And they're dealing with a lot of the oppression that came from um, sort of sort of well, what Hollywood was like in that point in time, what the what the country, the United States was like at that time, which was um, not friendly to uh people uh people that were homosexual or people of color and and actually you feel a lot of anxiety for those characters because there's some characters that are manipulating other characters um to do things they want them to do using the knowledge that they have that these characters uh are maybe closeted homosexual or whatever but after about episode three it feels like that the people who wrote that show loved their characters so much and kind of wanted to rewrite actual history to showcase what the world would look like but it almost was they almost got to their end result too fast because it took all the anxiety out because it was like all of a sudden after episode three success 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 and all of a sudden it was like well there's no conflict and i'm not anxious because i was anxious in episode three but then everything's just started to roll along in a really positive good way and so that i feel like the writers weren't doing the negative things to their characters that would have made us feel a little bit more anxious along the way and and it, it depends on, again, on the story that you're telling, because yeah. which fulfillment is a legitimate genre of story. Mm. It's, the, it's the opposite of the cautionary tale. Um, <laughs> right. and, and so it, what it sounds like is that Hollywood is ultimately a wish fulfillment show. It may have started in more of a conflict base, um, yeah. but it takes itself to a wish fulfillment place, which is a very legitimate way to tell a story. And I was going to bring this up when we talked about despair, but yeah. one of the one of the therapies that has proven effective with soldiers mm. who have PTSD. Oh yeah. Is that when they have a flashback reliving something traumatic that happened to them to sit down, then sit down with a notebook and rewrite the ending of that memory mm. uh, to rewrite how it went. And that actually has a healing effect um, on the trauma. Wow. And so, you can see wish fulfillment stories as, as sort of a macro version of that. You know, mm. it, can be, it can be, it's not, it's not going to work as most conflict based types of stories do, yeah. but it can have a healing effect. Yeah. Actually, I would, I would, I would say that, that the, the show Hollywood does have quite a bit of a healing effect for sure. Um, and, and I think that too, like that type of style is going to, again, all audience based because as somebody who is not a person of color uh, and not homosexual, then that wish fulfillment is not necessarily something. Now, do I wish Hollywood was better for those people at that time? Absolutely. But because that's not inherently a pain or trauma I carry, that show is really not for me as an audience member. Right. So I think that that's, that's part of it too, is knowing who your audience is and that can be much more impactful for one audience than it is for another audience. Um, Really quick, before we get into to despair, um, Justin Weaver asked, Justin Weaver is, by the way, one of the hosts of the, uh, where's my camera, the Story Geeks podcast. Um, so he asks, he always asks good questions. Is anxiety a always a negative thing or does it ever serve the character who's experiencing it? What do you think about that? Uh, I would say that anxiety is always a negative thing but mm. that it is often still a necessary thing mm. that uh, negative experiences are usually required to get through a problem or to get mm. through a challenge or to get through an obstacle. And by definition, something has gone wrong or else you wouldn't want to get past whatever this thing is, or you wouldn't want right. to solve this problem. So I, I would say anxiety is necessary mm. and it's the, it's the counterpoint mm. to hope. So your characters will be hoping for a certain result, but at the same time, fearing that it will not go that way. And you need the two. You can't have hope without the anxiety. And you really can't have the anxiety without the hope. Uh, mm. otherwise, otherwise, they're both just some, some version of um, inevitability. Uh, you know, a fatalism. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. They're, otherwise, they just become a, a version of fatalism. Fatalism sure. that's called optimism if you fall into the hope fatalism. And it's <laughs> called pessimism if you fall into the anxiety fatalism. But it's just fatalism. Right. So. That's good. That's really good. I like that. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, um, I agree wholeheartedly. There was a TED Talk I saw at one point in time. And it was really informative. And I saw this from a couple different researchers. But it was talking about stress. And the interesting thing about stress is that a lot of times you'll hear about stress uh, 
in that it is always bad for you. Like, right? Like stress is really bad. You need to get all the stress out of your life. You don't want stress. Stress is really bad. And what both these researchers said, both the TED Talk and the, pre the other paper that I had read, was that actually stress is only negative on the rest of your body. It's not that it's not a negative to begin with, but it's only a negative on like your health uh, and your wellness when the stress is perceived as being negative uh, and, and almost like you, you slip into despair or you slip into anxiety. In other words, anxiety or stress, to your point, prompts us to understand that something is not right or that something could be different or something could be better and that we need to move towards that thing. And so I think that in, in storytelling, it's the same way. It's if we have characters, you know, one character may look at that and say, I need to overcome this, right? Like take a Luke Skywalker, for example, right? I need to overcome Darth Vader. I need to overcome uh, this, this lack of connection that I have with my father. Whereas you could see another character just go straight into despair and go down a B path where they just end in despair, right? And so I think that you're right on. It's like it's it's an, it's necessary. It is negative, and then the character has to decide: is this a negative that I'm going to fix, or is this like we talked about? What is it? Four weeks ago now, we talked about uh, what storytelling is all about: is solving a problem. And so, is the, are they going to work to solve the problem, or are they just going to be? just taken apart by the problem uh, at the, at the seams kind of like. Yeah. And, and the word that mm. researchers use to describe good stress is you stress, E U stress. There you go. Which uh, should probably bring up to people who saw our last episode, what our discussion <laughs> of Tolkien's idea of the you catastrophe, yep. the, the, the good catastrophe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love it. Great question, Justin. Thanks for asking that. Um, so before we transition into despair, quick announcement. Coming in October here on the Fantasy Storytelling YouTube channel and on all the Story Geek accounts, the Story Geeks podcast and the Story Geeks YouTube channel, all of our shows are going to be inspired by season two of The Mandalorian. It's one of the only new pieces of content we're getting in 2020, but we're, we're kind of structuring all of our shows uh, to be inspired by things from The Mandalorian. So I'll have a video on this channel about anti-heroes and why I think the standard definition of what an anti-hero is sucks. And uh, I'll break down why I think that is and then talk about some great examples of anti-heroes. Um, Caleb and I will be talking about anti-heroes and bounty hunters and Star Wars on this channel. And then both the Story Geeks podcast, like I talked about, and the Story Geeks YouTube channel will also be talking about the new episodes of The Mandalorian and everything else going on that might be inspired by that favorite bounty hunters, favorite weapons, whatever it is. We'll be talking about all that stuff. So stay tuned for that. Um, you can check out the storygeeks.com for a complete list of all of our shows that are produced by the Reclamation Society. So go check that out. And I just released, for those who are interested, I just released a new e-learning course. So if you want to learn more about Marketing 101 for self-published authors, I take, you know, my 20 years of experience in marketing um, combined with my uh, self-publishing of Time Slingers. Where's my camera? There you go. Um, it's backwards on my screen, so I keep putting it further out of frame. Um, I take both those two things and then just talk about like all of the different things you should think about as a self-published author as it relates to your marketing and your marketing campaigns. Um, a full umbrella, not just promotion, but thinking about it from, from the ground up. So that's something you can check out. There's a link down in the description below if you want to check that out. Um, so just a couple of, just a couple of, uh, housekeeping details before we get into to despair here. Um, and we, by the way, we have a special presentation from Caleb about when we get to this part of it too, which is really cool. So transitioning into despair, which is like the worst segue in the history of podcasting, <laughs> right? Like, Hey, stick around for despair. Uh, but this is a fantastic theme for storytellers to play with Google's definition of despair is the complete loss or absence of hope. So Caleb, why is despair an important and powerful theme and an emotion for the writer's tool belt? I would say that despair is a canary in the coal mine mm. to help you measure whether the, the problem that your story is built around is mm. big enough to sustain a story of that length. Um, mild problems don't sustain a film, don't sustain mm. a novel. It, they have to be 
problems of a certain size to be able mm. to carry the, that much narrative weight. Yeah. And so if the potential or experience of despair is not involved, then the problem is probably not big enough. You know, if, if the result of the problem winning versus the character winning is not something that's um, desolating, mm. then then there's a good chance your problem is too small. So I would say that that is a it is a very useful mm. way of looking at despair. It doesn't have to happen in the story, but knowing that it could will kind of help you as a storyteller understand is this does this have a whole movie in it does this idea have a whole novel in it that sort of yeah, thing that's really good can you think of any specific examples that of despair in the stories that you personally love and, and how, why those examples are so powerful to you yeah uh so the two examples i'm going to do it again by character and by audience so yeah, two examples yeah. uh, so ex for the characters actually and the audience uh, mm. the ending of avengers infinity war is an excellent <laughs> example of despair yeah. And then, and then the first five minutes of Endgame actually make it worse. <laughs> you feel you feel like you are just at the pit at the end of Infinity War, and then five minutes into Endgame, they've actually they've made it even worse. And mm. I'd say that is a great example of despair Fantastic. and and its function in a story in a in a in a large story consumed by very many people in a popular medium, a very influential type of story. And they just went full into despair. Yeah. Um, in the audience, I would say Doom Generation, by mm. written and directed by Greg Araki. Mm. The, the way that that film ends creates a, just a very black feeling of despair in me. <laughs> um, so I, I never really watched the last five minutes of it. Um, really? It's a, yeah, I've, you know, I've seen the ending a couple times. I, I've watched the movie a lot. But I never really I there's, I usually just stop it right before the 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 penult, the climactic scene because it just leaves me feeling bad, um, wow. and so I would say Doom Generation is a good example. That I haven't seen that film, but the fact that the way you just described it is basically like uh, a storyteller's dream in a way, right? Like where the story is so powerful to you that you will actually turn it off because it's. It actually, you take something with you if you if you keep watching it. Um, that's that's really really fascinating. I, I really and and I should say that what heightens it is I also think it has one of the sweetest scenes in mm. it that I've ever seen. Mm. And this the the a story's ability to be both one of the sweetest things I've ever seen and one of the most depressing things I've ever seen within the same story. Um, that's a good story. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, I think I agree with I, I I agree with you. I think despair is really really helpful. I actually think it's essential to stories um, because like you you talked about, will this story be sustained? Uh, is a good measurement, right? Like it's almost a measuring stick of like how 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 are people going to react to this story if if the despair of this of this problem not being solved is great enough? Like how how will it draw an audience in? And to me, I think that despair is something that almost I won't say every story is playing with, but almost every story is playing with almost the same way that we talked about hope almost being played with in all of the stories that we we deal with. And just as a couple of examples, um, I love your example of Infinity War. Brilliant example. But in, in A New Hope, going back to Luke, right? Uh, if Red Squadron isn't decimated by the Empire in that climactic scene where their, their Red Squadron is coming down to attack the Death Star... If we don't start to lose hope in that scene, in that whole scene, and start to see that the entire rebellion is crumbling, and that this Death Star is going to just start decimating planets if the rebellion doesn't do something about it, um, then when we see Luke draw upon the Force in order to blow up the Death Star—spoiler alert, by the way—if you haven't seen Star Wars, <laughs> I don't know what to do for you. But uh, but if we don't if we don't first feel the despair. If we don't first see all of the other pilots missing and all of the other pilots, you know, just crashing into the side of the Death Star, then I don't think we ever get to feel the elation that we feel when we see the two torpedoes go into the Death Star and then it eventually just explode. Um, and so I think that in order for us to feel the elation of a story, we almost need to feel what despair 
uh, really is because the characters are already starting to feel that. So another example, going back to Lord of the Rings, is that if Frodo and Sam don't almost die on their way to Mount Doom, and if we don't see the darkness that is consuming the world, um, then we don't actually have the, the somewhat bittersweet elation about the way that the Lord of the Rings unravels in Return of the King. Somewhat bittersweet. But if we don't see the ring being destroyed, the way that it's destroyed, then it really doesn't it doesn't bring about the sense of hope. That in this case, the U catastrophe, as, as we talked mm-hmm. about, um, we won't get that same feeling. So, to me, despair is something that needs to be wrestled with because we, as we talk about the story, to your definition, being something where we're solving problems, then if the problem is not solved, then there has to be some sort of despair. But we hope in in what could be the problem being solved and in, in the world experiencing some level of shalom or everything being as it should be once the problem is is kind of solved. So I think, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the possibility of nothing working out is required mm-hmm. for a story to have any hope. Yep. Um, uh, the way James K. Smith put it is, a wilderness precedes every promised land. Oh, yeah. Um, otherwise, it's not a promised land. It's just where you are. Oh, that's good. Um, you know? <laughs> and, um, but I have a very funny story about the Red Squadron scene that yes, I'm yes, going yes. to tell real quick. So when I was, I saw this, first saw A New Hope when I was very young. I would, I don't know, maybe somewhere in the three to five-year-old range. I, sure. didn't have a, I didn't have a firm grasp on the difference between fantasy and reality. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I didn't understand special effects. Uh-huh. So so I genuinely believed that all those pe- those actors were dying to make that scene. <laughs> oh no. And my question to my parents was how did they know this movie was going to be good enough that it was worth giving up their lives for? Because <laughs> I didn't I didn't question that Star Wars was so good that it would be worth giving up your life to make. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I questioned. I just wanted to know how did they know it was going to be worth it? You know? Right. <laughs> right. I, I love that. I love that. Now, now, the next time you go into an acting gig, if you're out there and you're an actor and you're watching this, the next time you go to an acting gig, if you're not willing to give up your life like Porkins did, <laughs> are you really an actor? I don't know. Um, yeah, I, 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 that's really that's really good. Because you, you kind of knew. You kind of had made the decision. On the measuring stick of despair, you were like, this is worth it. <laughs> but, but why did they sign up for it? <laughs> right? yeah. uh, I like that. Also, uh, I wanted to add, there is a movie that ends, I think it ends with a lot of despair. Um, to, to your point about, about uh, Doom Generation, you said it was? Mm-hmm. Doom? Yeah. Um, this is a, more of a geek movie, so it's more in my realm of what I tend to watch. But uh, the movie Watchmen. The movie version, not the TV show, but the movie version of Watchmen, in my mind, um, ends with a lot of despair. Because while the world does avoid nuclear catastrophe, it has to, the only way for the world to realize that it needs to be unified is for people to have to sacrifice in ways that people probably shouldn't have to sacrifice. In other words, the the sacrifice isn't altruistic. The sacrifice is a really dark and despairing type of sacrifice just to prevent worse things from happening. Um, and I think that that's very instructive because it gets at it gets at some of the ways that we feel when we look out into the world um, in real life and see that it really does appear in most cases that if you look at real life, the depravity of man is very apparent to us. Whereas a lot of times if we look at stories, uh, we go, yeah, the depravity of man is there, but then there are certain men or women, right? When I say the depravity of man, I mean the depravity of humankind. Uh, there are certain humans who rise above that depravity. And that's great for stories. That's We should tell those stories. But also, it doesn't take away from the fact that that still is, uh, you know, it's sort of what Christopher Nolan says in, I think it's in uh, The Dark Knight, um, we either die heroes or we live long enough to become the villain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that Watchmen kind of encapsulates that in many regards in, in, in how they play that out. I think the graphic novel does an even better job of capturing mm. capturing mm. that emotional beat. Yeah, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, but you're right. There's yeah. a lot of despair in that ending. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then and then and the graphic novel handles some things better too, where. You know, those characters are really not supposed to be super powered besides Dr. Manhattan. But you wouldn't know it if you watch that movie, because some of them are very, very, very tough. Um, 
All right. Well, last question I have on here, and I'm sure we'll get into your uh, presentation on this as well. But if a storyteller finds themselves writing a story that plays with despair, and a lot of them will, and it can be a measuring stick. I love Caleb's definition there. A measuring stick to see if your story is even worth telling or, or how big the story could actually be. Um, what techniques, tips, or philosophies would you suggest to storytellers and writers about that? Um, so for this, I'm going to hearken back to something that I just mentioned in a glancing way in our last episode. But mm. despair is actually a form of pride. Mm. Um, because what des despair is you saying, I can't see a way out of this. Yeah. And because I can't see a way out of this, there is no way out of this. That's, oh, that's the, that's good. the leap in logic being made. So the, it's, pr sure. it, this, it's this pride that only I can fix the world or else it can't be fixed. Yeah. So when you're telling, when you want to create despair in your characters, I would just say, look for the places where they are overconfident. And how can their overconfidence lead them to a point where they can no longer see a way out? Mm. Um, not that there truly isn't a way out. They just can't see it because of their own blindnesses and overconfidences. Mm. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's really good. Um, yeah, I, I have a couple things on here. Do, when do you want? Do you want to do your presentation after I go, or do you want to do it now? No, you go, and then I'll do it. Okay. Um, I think that, like I talked about earlier, you know, like despair to me is a place where your audience has to believe that despair could occur or else the hope no longer really feels like it's like it's hopeful, right? Because uh, if it's not something that, it, otherwise it's not hope, right? Because we see the end already and it's like, we, we know that it's there. Um, and so I think that the depths of despair are also worth considering. Are we talking about unfulfilled love? That's one technique you could use. Loss of life, uh, loss of future, loss of health. I mean, like loss of life is probably like right below loss uh, loss of health, right? Like it's it's a it's a precursor, but it's a it's a level of despair. Philosophical despair. What comes after this life? Is this life even worth living? That's a form of despair that you could get into. Um, I think every human is faced at some point in time with this esoteric metaphysical sense of dread of like, well, what in the world happens? What is going to happen to me? What is going to happen to others? Um, it, it gets worse at times when we look around the world in a pandemic, it gets a lot worse. It gets a lot more heavy than it does if we look around and see kind of like some more, um, some more uh, thriving happening in the world. And I think that all of those things are worth exploring. I think that uh, maybe the best and simplest question to answer for the writer to, and the story of the storyteller to ask themselves is, what am I hoping for? And what if I suddenly doubted that that was possible? And that, that sort of will lead you straight into whatever despair looks like, mm -hmm. right? What am I hoping for? And what if I suddenly doubted that that thing was actually possible? And I think that if you're going to tell really impactful, amazing stories, I mean, I think that we brought up Lord of the Rings. We brought up, when we talked about storytelling, we've almost talked about Lord of the Rings every single time. And I think that this exercise matters because the you catastrophe allows someone like you or I to go, okay, well, I've figured out when I've explored the depths of despair that I could possibly get into and possibly explore, I still believe at the end of the day, I still hold on to this idea of you catastrophe. That even if I could not solve my own problems, my problems will somehow be solved. Um, and we're coming to that belief only because we went through the, the despair and the doubts to be able to get to a place where we believe that. And so I feel like if you confront your own belief systems, and I think that that's really important as humans, really important as writers, if you don't confront your own belief systems, you'll probably end up just writing propaganda of some of some in some way, shape or form, um, then it is. It, and that's critically important to your audience as well. So if you're trying to elicit despair in your audience, you need to question your own beliefs about hope. Look at what despair is. If that hope were not achieved, if that thing were not achieved, if that problem was not solved and then really work that into your stories in some way, shape or form. So I'll just, I'll just say that. And then I'll hand it over to you to be able to uh, close us out with this presentation. Okay. Let me go ahead and bring it up, bring up your, uh, add it to the stream and you can go ahead and play it. All right. So I, I won't be able to see you. So you'll have to tell me if the, if everything stops working. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's oh, working right now. It's working. Uh, hang on. Sorry. I'm, I'm starting at the end. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. So this is a presentation that I prepared for um, a team at work. We were, mm. we were beginning a 18 month creative project nice. and I, I just wanted to point out what was going to happen about two thirds of the way through it to all of us emotionally. And, <laughs> and, and I, and I even was able to give them a date range and say, it's going to happen in one of in these, within these dates, um, we're going to, we're going to feel like everything we've done up to this point is worthless and we're going to want to throw it all out and we're going to question ourselves and all of that. Um, so I'll go through this very quickly, but what does every creative project have in common? Well, it all hits, it's got a lot of names, but the Rocky Shoals, the All is Lost mm. Moment, the Dark Night of the Soul, the Wall, the Rough Cut, the Belly of the Beast, or the Dip. Mm. And it has many names, but everything, every creative endeavor has to go through it. So writing a screenplay, uh, Aline Brush McKenna calls it the Rocky Shoals and says, if I'm going to have an existential crisis, so there's going to be a moment where I drive home work and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I've ever written one of these before. I don't understand how these things work. So it will always be here in these pages. Mm. Um, on character arcs, page 71 to 90 is usually where people diagram um, the all is lost moment mm. or the dark night of the soul. Um, Craig Mason says, yeah, pages 71 to 90 in every movie is a horror movie, mm. uh, whatever the genre is, because it's where everything goes falls apart. <laughs> um, running a marathon, David Moynihan says it's the 20, 21 mile mark where the majority of club and fun runners hit the wall and their body tells them to stop. Mm. Uh, writing a novel, Stephen Pressfield says, this is the belly of the beast. Welcome to hell. Now you're in the mm. shit. Now you're feeling symptoms. <laughs> this is your trial by fire. And again, he assigns it a portion of the project. Uh, Seth Godin talks about starting a business or a similar venture um, and marketing in similar ventures. And he, you know, he calls it the dip. He's got a whole book on it. The long slog, the incredible grind, the doldrums when the pain is so bad that you're ready to quit. Mm. Um, and even preparing a sermon, um, I, I had a pastor who used to say, welcome to Friday, because Friday was always the day when it felt like the Sunday sermon was never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and it happens with multi-stage projects. So even each stage of a project will have its own dip, but mm. so will the overall project. Mm. Um, Jennifer Ruff says, I try to teach my students not to panic. I've never worked on a film where the rough cut looks good. Usually it's a disaster. Mm. And, and I, I mapped the averages for when a rough cut actually, like how long movies take to make, and when the rough cut is done, and that's where it falls. And um, in a comic book series, I did a 12 issue series once and it, everything went well. The scripts were used pretty much as they were, except issue seven. It was the hardest script to write. It was rejected by the licensor. It had to be thrown away and replaced with an entirely new script. Oh, wow. And if I put them all next to each other, do you see a pattern? Mm. Um, so we've talked about founding businesses. We've talked about your character's experience. We've talked about running marathons, writing um, a screenplay or a novel, preparing a sermon, it, producing a movie, any of these things. And it's a very consistent. So you can actually put it all together and you can predict pretty reliably <laughs> when in your own creative project, regardless of its scope or its time frame, you're going to enter your own emotional dark night. Mm. And so this is good to know when you begin things, because when you get there, it will not be a surprise. You'll know it's coming and you will also know that it ends, that there is, mm -hmm. that, that there is hope past that. Um, so we know it's coming. Now what? Um, and knowing it's coming is a gift in and of itself. First Corinthians says, no trial is overtaking you that is not distinctively human. Mm -hmm. um, it just reminds us that um, this is a normal experience. Um, we can expect it to get better. Craig Mason talks here about when you look back, you're like, oh, there were no rocks. There were no shoals. <laughs> um, <laughs> once you get to the other side of it. Um, Vicki King says in order for a dream to become a reality, it must be given up as a dream. And it's this mm -hmm. giving up stage, right? The, this entire stage of, of despair is a symptom of something becoming real mm. um, because you're learning um, to stop pushing toward the solution you thought would work and to let that go so mm. that you can actually solve the problem in front of you. And, and what I think is important to know as well as, as creators, I, I, I don't think they need to teach technique <laughs> in writing school <laughs> as much as they need to teach about the emotional journey that every project is going to take you on mm. um, because that is important to know. And one thing that you have to learn is the way you feel when you create something does not reflect its quality. 
Hmm. Um, so some of my best scripts were written when I felt the worst. Some of my worst scripts were written on days that felt like everything was going super well. Hmm. You, you, your, your mood and the way you feel as you do a piece of work it does not reflect its quality. And, you, and once you've written enough things, you'll you learn that lesson. But I'm telling you now, so maybe you can just learn from my mistakes. <laughs> um, and uh, and then I this is sort of where it ends. But Seth Godin says that this the dip. Mm. Um, it is that is why the endeavor is worth doing in the first place. Oh, wow. Because the dip is your secret to success because the dip is where most people stop. Mm. So if you can keep going when the system is expecting you to stop, then you will achieve extraordinary results mm. in, in the literal meaning of extraordinary because most people stop here. Mm. Um, getting through the dip is, is a scarce thing. And so it generates more value. Uh, I, 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 a friend of a friend who's a screenwriter, television writer, he won't read a an up and he won't read an aspiring writer's work unless they've written three screenplays, mm. because then he knows they can repeatedly get through this place, mm. and that means that they're pro that there's something serious in them about having a career. Um, I know so many people who started a screenplay and abandon it around page sixty, around page seventy. Most mm. people stop here, so if you can go through this. If you can learn how to live in it and get past it, that's what makes um, something worth doing in the first place. Oh, that's really good. Um, can, you, can you go back to the slide where you compare all the journeys across the... Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that this is really instructive because you just described all these different areas of life wherein the the shoals, the pit, the, the doldrums, like the worst, the worst part of what we would call thriving is it's, it's the area where we feel like failure is imminent and basically what you've like what you've shown is in a story arc right before the resolution right like so if if we're taking a story arc if we're talking about why things are so difficult it is the natural progression of so many of these different things whether you're writing this like you are the hero of the of the story writing the story and the person the audience watching the story is going to watch this journey and it may not be that you're you're writing about yourself writing the screenplay right it's probably not but you're going through this a similar journey as is the characters on the, as are the characters on the screen and I mean, you've got like, like if you were to, if you were to label that and like put a, like a Sid field type of paradigm against this, the end of act two is where it's all to the, where the plot point number two is coming to a head is really, is really that space. And that's, uh, that's really, I mean, what you're talking about is almost like a fundamental law of nature in some <laughs> regards. Right. Uh, yeah. that's really, that's really cool. I love that. So, um, I, I just, I want to share that because I think that a lot of writers are underprepared for the mm. emotional journey of writing mm. um, and they're over-prepared in the technique area. And mm. that's part of why we, we've been calling this series Beyond Technique. Yeah. Um, and just knowing that is coming puts you ahead of most of your peers already. Yeah, yeah, so true. And a lot of times too, you, you, you might even hit that, hit those spots. I know that I did this recently because uh, we were talking about, I'm working on a screenplay right now that, um, that is, we, we have a trilogy of films coming out. Um, hopefully, Caleb and, and Mike will be writing the, the, the later two films. I'm writing the first one. And, uh, and I talked about last time on the last show how I kind of just had abandoned the entire script. And I would describe myself as being in that place now on that script. And it's because I'm in the second script now and I'm going, I don't hate this script, but I just, I'm creating a million dollar budget film. I can't, I don't have a million dollars to film to, to make this film happen, you know? Um, and, and I think that that is probably where a lot of people too, it may be that you actually have to rewrite your entire script at that point. Right. And so having the, but imagine I used to tell I used to tell entrepreneurs this when I was coaching entrepreneurs. I would say failure is learning a thousand times how not to succeed so that you can succeed the thousandth and one time, right? And this is sometimes that's the that that's where you're in in that pit. You failed for the thousandth time and now it is just all that was was learning how not to succeed so that the thousandth and first time you could actually be 
um, successful. Justin Weaver in the chat says, I wonder where the average years of divorce line up in that graph. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the seven year itch is called the seven year itch for a reason. Yeah. Um, I, I've seen a lot of marriages um, go sideways in the seventh year. Mm. And the first and second year tend to be where a lot of marriages go sideways. I, if you can get past the second year, then I've, I've, I've noticed the seventh year tends to be the next really sticky part. And then, and then it keeps going. Um, for my wife and I, the 14th year was hard again. So I don't know if there's mm. some rule of sevens or something like that. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but, no you know, if, I think there's, it's, there's also probably a little difference because there is no marriage after the divorce. Um, yeah. So it's not possible for it to really fall at that end of act two because it's the end end of that particular yeah. uh, relationship. But yeah. Yeah, the resolution is basically two people on completely separate paths. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, good stuff. Really good stuff. As always, Caleb, I, I appreciate the conversation. Um, so I do want to give a shout out not only to CalebMonroe.com, which is uh, where you can find Caleb's stuff. You can find his uh, once a year newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> twice twice so there. far this year. <laughs> okay, good. Twice. <laughs> we got a quarterly newsletter. I love it. Um, but you can, but also I want I want to to make sure that you guys go and check out uh, the Mongolian Connection. Um, I will probably be finding it on Amazon because that's where I usually get all of my movies. But you can find it on a lot of different platforms. So definitely go check out the Mongolian Connection uh, and check out the actual feature film that Caleb um, has been able to uh, to write. He he wrote that film, so that's really really cool. And that is not a, how many writers get to actually say that their feature film was was actually produced not a lot of writers as it turns out so that's really cool um anything else you want to you want to throw out to anybody before i close it out here yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna give writers a a final practical tool about ah. their their emotional journey as they face all of these things um mm. the the precursor to despair or despair light um mm. i think we can we can describe that as discouragement Ooh, yeah. being discouraged and something that i i realized a few years ago, and I'm, I'm going to reference scripture here, but whether you consider it scripture or whether, or whether you just want to think about it as one of the most enduring works of literature mm. um, in human history, the entire New Testament, which talks about encouragement a lot, mm. never talks about it in the singular. It's always plural. There is no category for encouraging yourself. It's encouraging one another mm. is, is the only, is the only category given there. And uh, as I reflected on that, I realized, you know, I, I think that's true. I don't need any help getting discouraged, <laughs> but I need help to be encouraged. Right. Um, and 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 when I think about what encouraged means, literally, it just means to wrap in courage. You know, that that in the beginning of couraged is is the same as envelope and mm. envelop and enfold. Mm. It's about so to wrap someone in courage. So you are able to give each other courage mm. to when, when you have lost it uh, to discouragement. Mm. And so make sure that you have community mm. make, and make sure that you have community who understand what you're facing. Mm. Because I've also noticed um, as a community builder, uh, mm. I try to create what I call a second half of the conversation spaces. Mm. Um, so uh, for me, the first half of any conversation with other writers, I, I'm also explaining what it's like to be a Christian in this world. Mm -hmm. And the first conversation that I have with Christians, I'm explaining what it's like to be a writer. Um, <laughs> and But if I get, if I run into someone who, ha who knows the realities of both, we can skip to the second half of the conversation. And, and that applies with any, with any circumstance. So it's, you wanna have community in general, but you also want to have community with which you can jump to the second half of the conversation because what I've noticed is that's where almost all the encouragement happens. When you can just say, oh, my editor said this, and then and you don't have to explain it. Everyone in the room knows the implications of that. They've all felt that, they've all done that. Um, and so then the where the conversation goes from there is, is a place of, of true encouragement. So I will throw that out. Make sure you have community and and make sure that you have people who do what you do as part of that community. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that. That's that's awesome. Uh, and also to encourage you, uh, Alexander in the chat said, thanks for the video and the writing advice and observations. So we appreciate you, Alexander. And thanks for encouraging us. Thank you. Um, 
Also, please consider supporting our shows by donating through Patreon. I mentioned that we're a nonprofit organization and we use Patreon um, as our supporters support us on there. So we appreciate anything that you can contribute to learn more about supporting us and to see a complete list of all of our upcoming shows, which I still have yet to put out there. So it will be there, but it is not there yet. Visit thestorygeeks.com. Any final parting thoughts, Caleb? Uh... (laughs) Uh, so many because now, like I'm, I'm all amped up now that we've been talking for an <laughs> yeah. hour. But I will, I will just, I will let it go. We will, we will see you, see you all in two weeks. Yeah, well, maybe we'll have more comments about this very same topic. That's how, that's how amped we are about it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's what it'll be. All right, we'll see you guys later. <laughs>